A pediatrician named Clemens von Perquet ended up killing himself at age 54 years old. In fact, him and his wife both committed suicide with cyanide. Before he died, he did a lot of interesting work and observations in immunology. And one of the things that he observed back in 1909 was that when patients were recovering from measles, not only did they have decreased responses to tuberculin that was injected for skin testing, he also observed that these patients recovering from measles had flares, clinical flares of tuberculosis. Let's jump ahead for a minute to modern times, and I want to look at a BMJ article, British Medical Journal, titled Late Mortality After Sepsis, and this was published in 2016. And the results of this observational cohort study showed that sepsis was associated with a 22% absolute increase in late mortality in those adults that survived hospitalization. And if you didn't read this study, it'd be easy to come up with things in your own head as to why that may be. So you may be like, well, maybe this can be partly explained by age. Nope, that wasn't a factor. Maybe it's socioeconomic demographics of these people that get into sepsis issues, and nope, that wasn't the issue. Or maybe it was just pre-existing conditions or health status before sepsis occurred. And no, that was not a factor either. There may be several factors at play, but maybe at the very top of the list, or higher on the list at a minimum, is that there is some sort of suppressed immune response that is a result of epigenetic scarring of immune cells. So I started off talking about how measles can induce an immunosuppression, and this was not just seen with tuberculosis, as was well observed, in the early 1900s, but it also increases the risk of second bacterial otitis media infections, tracheitis, even just pneumonia. And by no means is this limited to measles inducing immunosuppression or sepsis causing immunosuppression. If you take something like hepatitis B and hepatitis C, these are viral infections of the liver, and yet if you get these, you have an increased risk of staphylococcal and pneumococcal infections. The immune cells are actually being epigenetically changed. So how the immune system responds to bacterial infections is weirdly associated with even getting something like a viral infection. In the examples I've shared so far have been detrimental, meaning it seems like you're getting more susceptibility to infection. But it can go both ways. So there was a really neat review article in the New England Journal of Medicine on January 21st, 2021, and it was called Post-Infectious Epigenetic Immune Modifications, a Double-Edged Sword. And when I say it is neat or interesting to somebody like me, and it really is, I realize that actually is not true for 99% of the population. I think we've gotten to the point where finding another planet with life is less exciting to most people compared to finding another planet with Wi-Fi. So let me give an example where an epigenetic change to the immune system can be unintentionally beneficial. So if you take BCG, which is a vaccine for tuberculosis, rarely used in the United States, but it's often given to small children, young children, in countries where tuberculosis is common, the epigenetic reprogramming of the immune system 
can give non-specific protection. For example, if you get the BCG vaccine, it decreases neonatal sepsis and pneumonia and all-cause mortality in developing countries. It helps increase the clearance of yellow fever viremia. Now think about that for a second because BCG is an attenuated strain of Mycobacterium bovis, so it doesn't really have to do with the other things I'm talking about, like yellow fever. And the reason this happens is because there is a reconfiguration of how our genomes are organized through epigenetics. And when we talk about epigenetics, I think we can all agree that there's a genetic basis for inheritance. We inherit our DNA and our genes from our parents and great-grandparents and ancestors. And I think we also agree that an organism is a byproduct of both its genetic makeup and the environment, meaning we can take genetically identical organisms and put them in different environments, let's say in the Alaska tundra, in the Saharan desert, and wherever else. And the result is that with very different environments, our genetic makeup will express itself in different ways. And so when we have environmental pressures or even pleasures that bring out how we express those DNA sequences, those genes, it is not because we are actually changing the DNA, we are not changing the gene, though that, of course, is possible to do. But rather, epigenetics is how we change the reorganization of those genes, how those genes are packed. And then as a result, if you turn on some genes, it may have certain effects beyond just what was intended. So if you get away from the genes we inherited, but rather how our genes are expressed, which is a term called phenotype, our phenotypes, what we express, is a combination of our genotype, the genes we have, and then epigenetic modifications and environmental and lifestyle factors that make those epigenetic modifications. So a lot of us white folks, for instance, could be darker skinned if we are exposed to sunlight. Our genes actually control the amount and type of melanin that we produce, what our phenotype is, what we are expressing. So if I am hanging for a couple years in the North Pole out of sunlight, I'm going to be very white. If I'm hanging in Hawaii for three weeks, I'm going to have melanogenesis. And I once dated this girl who was actually in the tanning Olympics, and she won the highest prize, which was the bronze. Her and her friend, who looked really alike, would walk into tanning salons together, and the tanning receptionist was always like, oh my god, are you guys sisters? And they would say, no, 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 we're not even Catholics. And like most guys, intelligence wasn't the most required feature for when I was dating when I was younger. We are getting back to epigenetics. I think we understand what genetics means, but what does epi mean? Well, epi literally means above. Epigenetic, therefore referring to above the DNA. Restructuring promoter regions and therefore accessibility to the DNA, to gene transcription. When you have an epigenetic change, it's not that you're changing your DNA sequence, you're changing how your body reads your DNA sequences. 
genes are turned on and they are turned off. So if I go in a lot of UV light, my melanin gene is turned on. There are millions of examples of this. And these examples also include our immune system responses to infections, to vaccines, to stress, to happiness, to nutrition. And when you look at the science at a DNA level of how epigenetics works, there's a lot of things, but one that's typically talked about is methylation, where methylation turns genes off and demethylation turns genes on. And therefore, epigenetics is so important in life. Like, you know, as a listener, if you listen to me a bunch, I love weightlifting. And so epigenetics allows a muscle cell to turn on genes in response to lifting weights that make proteins in the muscle. Likewise, if you sit on a couch all day, you're going to turn off those genes that make proteins in the muscle. But what's crazy about epigenetics, and I think this really is the new frontier of genetic medicine in the last couple decades, there's been a few, but this is really neat, is that while a lot of epigenetic changes are not permanent, meaning you can turn on melanin or not, or become muscular and then become totally deconditioned with sarcopenia if you turn off those genes, so while a lot of epigenetics is reversible, we are finding more and more that the epigenetics is inheritable. It didn't change the DNA, but rather how that DNA is expressed. So if you live through a famine or a very traumatic event, those genes that were turned on from those events may be more likely to be turned on in your kids, in your grandkids, and their kids. And this has specifically been studied in things like the Dutch hunger winter famine in 1944 and 1945, as well as several other experiments. And then you can look at things like cancer. Let's take a common gene we all know about, BRCA1. And if you prevent that gene from working properly, let's say through epigenetic methylation, then you are going to increase your risk of breast and many other types of cancers. So you could actually inherit a mutated BRCA1 gene, and that can result in multiple cancers occurring or more likely to occur in a person. Or DNA methylation or demethylation can happen to a gene that makes it more likely to be expressed or not. And I should also express that these alterings of gene activity without actually changing the DNA sequence, which is epigenetics, does not happen just through methylation and demethylation. There's a lot of things going on. Phosphorylation, acetylation. But the easiest one to study in the last years for scientists has been methylation, and that's why it is often discussed with epigenetics. Well, I hope that helped to clarify at least some basic understandings. And, you know, we're seeing epigenetics all the time, not only in our own lives, but definitely in medicine. And so I bet that next sepsis patient that survives, you'll be thinking about their epigenetics, their one in five chance of dying in the next two years. And there may be therapeutic targets for that methylation and demethylation process. I'm sure there will be at some point, whether that happens during our time in our careers, I'm not sure. 
but at least we'll understand these kind of things that are acquired immunity in both the innate and adaptive immune cells, and then sometimes detrimental epigenetic scarring of our immune cells. And the influence on cancer and just our day-to-day phenotypes, how we express our genetics. And I just find this all fascinating. And if you made it to the end of this lecture, I suspect you do too. So this is Dr. Gil Parat, and I will catch you on the next round.